0: This is our 30th episode. We're really excited. And programming note, after this episode, we will be bi-monthly, as in once every two weeks. So check out the podcast. Really excited for you guys to keep listening.
1: If there's any country that could start a foundry from nowhere, I would say Japan is the one because they have so much capabilities in the tool space. And there's some parts of the semiconductor supply chain that it's only Japanese companies, right? Right, right. Like, you can't make a mask. Which is what goes in the photolithography tool without Japanese companies. And so, you know, these sorts of things, and they have a huge talent pool. So maybe they can do it. And they have to invest a ton of money. So the government's, you know, going to have to put in over twenty billion dollars. And yeah, you know, we'll see if it works out. But I think it's interesting. You know, I get why they want to do it from a national security perspective. But two nanometer in twenty twenty nine is that really going to be competitive or useful? Or you know, are people going to want to redesign their chips for it? We'll see.
0: This is Startup Island, Taiwan the channel all about cutting-edge technology, influential global tech players and Taiwan. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John from the Asian Armature YouTube channel, and I have a special guest here today, Dylan Patel from Semi Analysis, a semiconductor boutique analysis firm. Dylan, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. How are you enjoying Taiwan so far?
1: It was great. Um, You know, one of the first things I did uh, last weekend was I biked around TSMC's fab and I posted on Twitter about it. And then, you know, two of the newspapers posted on their online version about it. So I thought that was quite interesting, right? It was just posting about the fab and, you know, saying, hey, this is what this is and this is what this is and somehow became a story.
0: Um, So (laughs) that was fun. You've made waves as soon as you arrived. Yeah, I guess so. How did some of my analysis come about? Like what's kind of your background? What's the story behind this firm?
1: So I worked in data science and then a little bit of AI and then moved towards AI hardware. Um, finally, before launching my own firm for consulting, um, you know, I had a couple clients and then I started hiring. And now we have, you know, multiple people across the US and Singapore. Hiring in Taiwan, if anyone's interested. That's the general background. Started in 17, but really kicked off in 2019 full time.
0: And what advice to anyone who wants to get into semiconductors or wants to learn about them and get started? Like, what advice would you give them?
1: From when I was a kid, you know, I was posting on these forums about gaming and smartphones, which I'm sure many people who follow the semiconductor industry, that was a similar uh, sort of background, either through PCs or smartphones or gaming. And so, you know, what I would say is just try and learn one level deeper, right? What precedes this, right? Okay, everyone knows about TSMC, but what precedes TSMC? It's all the tool companies. Read about the tool companies, learn about them, you know, try and learn about them from a holistic manner of not just, you know, maybe technology or sales, but try and combine everything together, what kinds of tools. There's a lot of information on the internet that people don't realize is out there, and it's just, you have to dig. It's all out there for you to take. When you start on a company,
0: you mentioned you're doing something maybe on disco. Like, how do you get started? What's like your first thing you do when you sit down at that computer and you're going to start researching?
1: So just to back up for the readers, disco is a Japanese company that is involved in cutting wafers, grinding them down. Uh, They do it with saws or with lasers. And so, you know, we've been reporting on them for some time. We've been following them, following the developments of the company. It's a very interesting space. And the method of starting to research, you know, was just like, hey, you know, okay, I see how people make wafers. I know the companies that package them, you know, companies like ASC in Taiwan and, you know, many others across the world. So how are they cut? And then you went down the rabbit hole and I was like, oh, okay, so there's this Japanese company that happens to own the majority of the market because they're just so good at it. And, you know, researching about them online, I went to an event where they were uh, publicly, SemiCon, very big event. So SemiCon, they were there and I just bugged each person at the booth for 15 minutes each and, you know, learn more. And, you know, from there that was the start. And then from there you can, you know, learn more and more and more. There's a lot on their website even, right? And then a lot on, you know, YouTube videos were in YouTube videos. So, it's really cool. It's
0: kind of a mix of internet and on-the-ground research, right?
1: Yep, exactly. That's really awesome.
0: So, like going to kind of semiconductors as one of the hottest or everyone's talking about it right now and it's kind of really intertwined with something like AI. What are some of the big things happening in the semiconductor industry right now that we should all know about? Like what are the big trends or big happenings?
1: Sure. So, in the semiconductor industry, there's a variety of, you know, large-scale changes that are happening that could redefine the, you know, value chain, right? Uh, One of those is advanced packaging, so instead of you know, just focusing on making the most advanced chip possible. It's about how do we split the chip apart and put it back together in a creative and unique way. And so that's, you know, really helping, you know, firms in Taiwan, like TSMC is doing a lot of advanced packaging, but also, you know, ASC is doing a lot of advanced packaging. It's changing how the value chain is constructed. There's a lot around generative AI, of course, you know, specialized chips for it, chips from the largest companies in the world, like Google and Meta and Facebook and Amazon, right? Amazon, you know, it's not well publicized, but Amazon, while they do design their own AI chips, they actually do it in conjunction with a Taiwanese company called Alchip. And uh, then they get it fabbed by TSMC, of course. But, you know, there's a lot of um, things happening that are redefining the value chain, right? At least as far as, you know, Taiwan, right? GUC and Alchip are helping these major companies, you know, design their own chips. And, you know, they sit silently in the background, but there's a lot of this sort of IP licensing going on, you know, from companies like Andes and backend design services from companies like GUC and Alchip. So that's a big wave that's going on. There's a ton on networking as well. Very dynamic space, tons of changes going on there. And then the last thing I guess I would describe is the sort of globalization of the supply chain. You know, Taiwan is the heart of it all for semiconductors, but Uh, You know, we see this with TSMC making fabs overseas, Samsung expanding fabs overseas, you know, Intel making fabs overseas. You know, everyone's trying to globalize their supply chain. And so that's another really uh, interesting aspect of what's going on in the industry.
0: So when people talk about like AI, and you mentioned just now like Amazon, right, doing AI chips, what does that break down to? Because, you know, NVIDIA, right? They're like the big player in AI chips. But like what are some of the other segments that exist in this space and like perhaps other companies might be able to find opportunities for
1: So the thing about AI is, you know, everyone describes it as just like, yeah, it's AI, right? But it's not like one monolithic workload. It actually, you know, there's very many different kinds of algorithms, many different kinds of chips that suit those different algorithms as best as possible, right? You know, the NVIDIA chips are like the big hammer, you know, one size fits all. It works for everything, works really well for everything, and it's really easy to use. But there's lots of room to say, hey, we're only going to focus on one type of algorithm, right? And so there's many companies that have done, you know, chips around just image recognition. And, you know, you put them in cameras, you put them in, you know, these sorts of applications. That's a huge one. There's chips around, you know, just voice detection and transcription. There's actually a Taiwanese startup called New Chips. And they're making AI chips specialized for one specific sector, which is deep learning recommendation networks. So if you're on Instagram or if you're online or what have you, right? I, don't, I actually don't use lines, so I don't know, but I know everyone here does. Or Twitter, right? Or, you know, Facebook, what, what have you. Google search, the order that your posts show up in is determined by a deep learning recommendation network. And those networks are learning from not only, you know, what is useful for users, but hey, what is useful for this specific user? Hey, John, I know you like to search for these sorts of things. So when you search this, I know that you actually want this. And so I'll put that first, right? These deep learning recommendation networks are, you know, very different from, you know, image uh, recognition networks or voice recognition networks or generative AI networks, right? They're, so New Chips is a company in Taiwan that's trying to specialize to tackle that specific space.
0: That's really amazing. I never even heard of this kind of use case. Wow. Are they recent?
1: Yeah, they're. Uh, I don't know exactly where in Taiwan. They have an office in San Jose, of course, but I think their headquarters is here. A few years old, they've already taped out a chip. Of course, it's the first chip. So, you know, the success always happens on the second chip in this industry. And so it's, it's hard to get there, but, you know, they're promising so far. But yeah, there's so many specialized AI algorithms and people are always developing new ones, right? Like basically a year ago, people started talking about stable diffusion and DALI-2, like these models where they generate images. And that computational profile is completely different from any other AI application, right? Again, NVIDIA chips are great. One size fits all. But there's room to specialize further. Right. And so if a company could tackle that, you know, that could be a potential space. Right. The same with large language models. Right. Of course, it's such a large market. NVIDIA is trying to tailor their chips more towards that. But there's still space for companies to optimize for that specific goal. And the world of AI algorithms is going to continue to get more diverse. And so the room for a chip specialized for, you know, an architecture specialized for that is going to continue to grow. And the other thing to mention is that the power profile and size of the chip also matters a lot, right? Can you put an NVIDIA GPU in a camera on the street? No, you absolutely cannot, right? You have to use a specialized chip that's a certain level of power consumption. And so the same will apply to... You know, every workload, whether it's a smartphone or a tablet or in all these robotics and Internet of Things applications, there's going to be a variety of power levels as well as architectures for the neural networks that run on them. So you can sort of come up with a matrix of like, hey, yeah, this is good for image recognition at one watt. This is good for image recognition at 10 watt. This is good for image recognition at 100 watt. And then you could go all the way across to, you know, the various types of algorithms and to the scale of thousands of chips, even, right? You know, so it's a very diverse and complex world. You just have to find your niche. And it's definitely a difficult thing to find.
0: Do you find a lot of the market going to like cloud data centers, like companies that operate those? Or do you see more like edge stuff like phones or consumer electronics products?
1: So there's a bit of both, right? Ultimately, you know, edge is probably going to be bigger than inference in general, right, which is running the model, right? Actually, once you've trained it, running it, getting the evaluations out of it is ultimately going to be a bigger model than training the models themselves. You know, once you train it, you want to be able to deploy it everywhere. And so, you know, a lot of people are doing that in the cloud, but a lot of people are also doing that on the edge. And so you see that with, you know, MediaTek and Qualcomm have both shown off, hey, we can run stable diffusion on a phone. They've both shown off demos and it's pretty interesting. Apple's done the same as well. So all the smartphone vendors are trying to get along in in the game. All these applications for smart city and robotics, again, inference on the edge. You know, there's times where you just can't go to the cloud. It takes too long. It's too costly. Your data is not secure, as secure when you go to the cloud. So you cost too much from a network perspective. And so you can't go to the cloud. But then there's many times where, hey, my data all goes to the cloud and that's where I want to run the workload. So it's very diverse and sorry, I can't get an answer on it.
0: No, no, that's perfectly all right. It's complicated, of course. So everyone's talking about large language models. They're like, the joke is that in tech, it's like every conversation ends with chat GPT. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of the hardware aspects, the specializations of the hardware that's needed to run inference on these particular LLMs.
1: Yeah, so this is a space that's, you know, very diverse, even within itself, right? The types of models that are run on, you know, chat GPT, GPT-4 is a very different model than maybe what some other kinds of large language models that are out there, right? And so you can look no further than the sort of open source movement around large language models. These are all focused on, you know, smaller models that are maybe a few billion parameters, seven billion parameters. And a
0: parameter is like what, the text that goes in or what is that?
1: Yeah, so a parameter is essentially, you know, you can think of it like a neuron. Uh, Not exactly, but, you know, your brain has X number of neurons, billions of neurons and synapses. And a parameter is basically a number that you would multiply whatever text goes in by. And so if you really want to think about it, right, chat GPT, you know, before they did GPT-4, because we don't know the details on that, but GPT-3 was 175 billion parameters. So every time you wanted to generate a word or a token, you had to go through the entire network. And the entire network would take the input and that would multiply and add and also do a few other operations in between all the layers 175 billion times, right, by 175 billion different numbers which are the parameters, and the output it would come out with four parts And you would just keep doing that sequentially until you get the you know full final output that you wanted. That's incredible.
0: So you can easily see then why hardware is so important. Like even the tiniest scent really scales, right?
1: Exactly. Right. So if you think about it right, you know a token is about four letters. So four letters is, you know, you have to multiply 175 billion times plus the, all the other operations, right? So it's incredibly computationally intensive, but also it's intensive on memory bandwidth and network bandwidth. And so, you know, going back to your original question, there's a diverse set of needs. So one is, Hey, chat GPT, you know, these massive large language models. The other is. Well, why can't I have something like this on my phone? You know, why can't I say, hey, John, yeah, I'll see you at 1.30. And then I just tell my phone, yeah, I'm going to see John at 1.30 tomorrow at this place. And then my phone figures out itself. Hey, the place that we talked about is here on Google Maps. It's actually here. Let me create a calendar event with all this information. Put it on my phone. This is stuff that people are working on. But the thing is, you know, you can't run these massive, you know, large language models that are hundreds of billions of parameters, just not possible. It's physically impossible on a smartphone. Even five years of tech advancement, smartphones won't be able to run something like that. And so there's smaller language models that could run there, right? And so people are developing those. And then there's, you know, a whole nother scale of models that could run on a laptop and a PC, a whole nother scale of models that could run on PCs, discrete GPU, right? You know, you stick an NVIDIA GPU in your PC, a gaming one, right? Not necessarily the super expensive $10,000 plus, you know, you know, AI GPUs, And then that's just on the consumer side, right? Right, right. Uh, What about in the cloud? The same will apply, right? The chip that works the best and is the most efficient for a 7 billion parameter model is not going to be the same as one for 175 billion parameter model. That's not going to be the same for a trillion parameter model. And the other thing that, you know, I don't think we have time to get into, but these architectures across these will be different over time. The largest models don't look the same as the smallest models. It's not just scale it up. So not only is it, you know, different numbers of parameters, but the architecture itself is different. And so the chip's, suited to those will differ. One simple way to think about it is there's sort of two main things. One is there's computing it actually, and the other is actually getting the data in and out. And so that ratio changes as you change model size, as you change architecture. And so different chips would be suited for different avenues of this. Wow.
0: So that's what you mentioned with networking, right? Like moving the data in, or you talk about interconnects, like what specifically are you kind of mentioning about?
1: Yeah, so we can further break that down into two (laughs) different, right? There's IO, uh, memory IO, and there's network. And so memory IO is all my parameters are generally stored in uh, DRAM. DDR memory again, this is Taiwan podcast so I want to say it mentioned Micron has a big memory fab in Taiwan, but most of the memory DRAM in the world is fabricated in Korea, of course. And so DRAM is going to hold all those parameters, those billions of parameters. And every time you want to generate a token, or you know, text, you read it in. You do all the computation and then you do your output, Um, but the parameters are so large, you can't actually hold those all on chip. That's why you have to constantly stream them in and out. And so the memory bandwidth requirements differ across these models. The other thing is the network bandwidth, right? So a model can get so large that, you know, no matter how big of a chip you have, even if it's a $20,000 NVIDIA H100 GPU, right, that still cannot run the model because the model is so big now. And so even GPT-3 is actually too big to run on a single H100 GPU, you know, this $20,000 GPU that NVIDIA makes. So GPT-3 is too big for that. Then becomes important is how do I connect multiple chips together and pass the computations between each other, pass the parameters between each other, so on and so forth, right? How do I actually interconnect this together? And so not only is my memory bandwidth important, right, my bandwidth to my DRAM, Uh, but also my bandwidth between each chip on the network side. And so that becomes a problem. And then as you continue to scale, in fact, it's not even like, hey, I can stick multiple GPUs in a server or multiple AI chips in a server and run this model. Actually, it becomes to the point where I can't even run inference on this model until I connect many servers together. So GPT-4 is at that scale Google's Palm model is at that scale. And we'll probably see more and more announcements, you know, companies with models that are of that scale where hundreds of billions of parameters, right? Or trillions even.
0: So when you're a system integrator and you're building like these data centers, or I guess these are supercomputers now, right? Are you going to use just whatever the vendor says? Or like, how do you put these things together? So because you're putting together different parts from different suppliers and I guess where I'm going to is, like, how can Taiwanese companies, startups, like, get themselves into that attention span? Like, how do they get the attention of these larger system integrators who have the money that they, or have what they want?
1: So some of the areas where innovation is desperately needed, and, and there are some companies in Taiwan that are working on this, is with the cooling and with the networking, right? It turns out, you know, if you're, you know, NVIDIA's newest uh, GPU, $20,000 GPU is 700 watts. And in the past, right, like, data center chips were... 200 watts, you know, used to be Intel CPUs where, you know, the main chip you put in a data center and uh, at least the hottest chip in the data center. And, and those were 200 watts, right? These NVIDIA GPUs are three times that and, and the next generation is, you know, supposed to hit a thousand watts. So how do we cool this, right? The density of these. And then the other thing is, you know, networking between chips is difficult, but it is a lot easier if you can make the distance between each chip smaller. Um, And so there's a lot of packaging things going on there. But again, on the cooling side, how can I cool 700 watt chips stuck right next to each other? It makes it an even more difficult problem. And so there is a huge space of innovation for cooling things cost effectively, efficiently, and uh, well, you know, air cooling, you know, just sticking a piece of metal on the chip, right, effectively, and fans is not going to be able to solve because the needs of the models are growing so fast that, you know, of at least the biggest models is that you can't do it, right? You can't just continue to stick with air cooling. And so that's that's just one area. And that's on the physical side. Of course, there's many things on the semiconductor uh, side, uh, packaging side. There's also, you know, areas where, again, each model is going to have a different profile of how much memory bandwidth need, how much uh, network bandwidth I need, how much memory capacity I need, how much storage capacity I need, how many CPUs, how many GPUs. So the other thing is, you know, uh, at least I've seen some of the major ODMs, you know, Wishtron, Hanhai, Quanta Computer, Inventech, all these companies working on is making servers that suit these needs. But there's so many different combinations of all of these various metrics of even off-the-shelf parts, right? Off-the-shelf memory, off-the-shelf storage. How do you put them together in a way that is more useful and more cost-effective for the end customer? So that's another area where there could be a lot of innovation that's going on.
0: Do you imagine, like, as a lot of people are talking about these large, language getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And that's causing all these cooling issues, these interconnect issues and whatnot, or these IO issues. Do you see anything other than sheer size, like sheer scale of the model, contributing to better performance and better user experience.
1: People talk about the parameters of a model a lot, but there's other factors around the model that are just as important, right? Can I input only text or can I input images as well or videos? This is an area of models that's being heavily researched. OpenAI has talked about it. Google's talked about it, And of course, that technology will proliferate. Uh, Meta's talked about it, you know, models that can take multiple inputs. So the parameter account could stay the same, but you know, it could be vastly more useful to users, if you can input an image and say, hey, what's, you know, input the image alongside, you know, whatever text you want and say, hey, tell me, you know, blah, 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 blah. The other aspect is sequence length, what's called sequence length. And basically, it's, you know, how much data can you input into the model effectively, right? like you can always just put in hey why is this guy blue right and it'll tell you awesome reason why this guy is blue but what if you could stick in thousands and thousands of words what if you could paste in you know three different research papers and then start asking it questions about the research papers that you pasted in today's models you cannot do that you know it's just just physically impossible they're not suited for that but You know, there's development going on in there. So parameters would stay the same, but this what's known as sequence length or more generally known as context window is increasing. And that changes the computational profile as again as well. And then the last thing is, you know, security wise, right? There's a lot of stories making the rounds about how some Samsung engineers pasted in their source code for yield software because he wasn't working on the yield software, right? He was like, hey, like maybe ChatGPT can help me, you know, program this software for uh, helping with our yields. And, and it turns out he pasted that in and then, you know, someone noticed it, he got caught and it's like, you put in your private information into these models. So there's a ton of innovation going around. How do we make these models secure and private, right? How can I as an enterprise use these models to help assist with my business? You know, and it can be anywhere from like, you know, source code of Samsung yield software to all the way to like fast food ordering. And again, like fast food ordering is not something you probably want to go all the way to the cloud to it's probably too expensive. You know, at least in the U.S., Wendy's, I don't know if you guys even have that here, but they're trying to use large language models to help with ordering. And the thing is, right, like their menu is going to have like BLT, which is bacon, lettuce, tomato. You know, it's not going to be BLT, but there's like other acronyms associated with the company's menu that maybe the model from OpenAI doesn't know. I need to train my own model. And so in that aspect, there's actually some really cool efforts by Taiwan. The Taiwanese government has actually been investing in this. TWS, it's called Taiwan Web Services, is a, I'm not exactly sure on the structure, but it's a public and private partnership between ASUS and the Taiwanese government. And they have actually, uh, you know, built a high performance computer with thousands of GPUs. And they've actually released their first large language model this week. And the name, I love the name. It's called Taiwan number one. Um,
0: (laughs) The meme. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But anyways, you know, it's public private partnership. And they're saying, hey, you know, actually, this model is better on traditional Chinese tasks, because all of our training data was almost all of it was traditional Chinese was OpenAI using. I mean, yes, they used other languages, but They didn't use a ton of traditional Chinese, right? They actually used a whole lot more English and they probably used more uh, simplified than traditional. So, you know, there's room for that. And then partnering with a company like Taiwan Web Services could be a method of, you know, and there's plenty of U.S. companies that are also assisting on the software side because it's it's a very monumental task. So uh, whether it's the hardware or the software, there's plenty of space for people to assist companies build these large language models. Right. So maybe one day, you know, what's the famous fried chicken place here? TKK. So maybe one day we can order through a a large language model for them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's very interesting. Like I've heard a lot about these kind of these national LLMs or these national models. It's a very interesting trend. Like, what do you make of that trend? Like, Europe maybe training their own LLM and like Russia doing their own or something like that. What do you think is driving that? Is it just language?
1: The first thing first, I don't think it's just language because actually what they found is a model that's only trained in English can actually do some tasks in Japanese. There was a paper on that, which is like, how did it learn that? But I guess, okay. The other thing was a model that was trained with fully English data, even if it was trained with much less English data, but other languages, ended up being better at English tasks than the English-only model, so I don't think it's just a language thing. I think uh, these models will need to, you know, just given how much data these need to train. The traditional Chinese in Taiwan is important, but they're also going to have to supplement it with English and with Japanese and so on and so forth to make the model better. I don't think it's just language. I think it's all about security and national interest. The U.S. national supercomputers have also trained some, you know, LLMs, not OpenAI and Google, just like their own. Japan is working on it. Line, you know, they're not too far behind the U.S. companies, right, in terms of training their own LLMs. You know, Taiwan is doing it. Of course, China doing it. haven't heard on Europe, but I'm sure they are. And people are using either the national supercomputers that they've built, or they're building new AI supercomputers. And they're building these all so they can do securely, right? No one wants to be beholden to just one company. The world isn't going to be a world where Only OpenAI has a large language model and everyone uses that model. Uh, There will be tons of services built off of it, right? Uh, Super useful. You know, Twitter is going to have their own large language model. I use Twitter a lot. So that'll be there. And Line is going to have their own large language model. And people here use Line a lot. And Meta is going to have their own large language models. It already does. And so the world is going to proliferate that way. But then also... The major enterprises are going to do that, right? I'm not sure what the use case would be in, you know, maybe wafer fabrication, but I'm sure there could be a use case, right? Where I trained it on all of my code that I use in the fab, right? If I'm TSMC or if I'm Samsung, I trained it on all of that code. And now I can, you know, my engineers can use a large language model to help them assist them with coding without having to go to, you know, OpenAI or some other company where I now have security concerns around pasting my source code around yield, right? Just like that Samsung engineer did and uh, he got caught, right? So there's a lot of justification around security. And this of course applies at the national level, right? I mean, uh, you know, not to get like conspiracy theory level, but like if there's no large language models in Taiwan, but China has large language models. What if the internet is just flooded with pro-China propaganda that's generated by large language models, and there's nothing from Taiwan to combat that propaganda? So that could be a potential uh, thing that happens, right? I mean, it's things that I've seen and heard about. And certainly, you know, propaganda on the internet has been relevant since at least 2016, right? Where, you know, us Americans sort of had our election potentially swayed by them, you know, by bots on Twitter and such. And large language models are, I mean, I couldn't tell you if I'm arguing about politics, and I couldn't tell you if the numbers they made up are fake, you know, if there's just such a volume of data being generated by these models that are pushing a certain view It's just impossible to fact check unless, you know, you have your own computerized, you know, models that are sort of pushing against it.
0: Do you imagine like that kind of brings up the point of like AI alignment, right? The notion that we want the AI to do kind of what we want to do or, or what wanted it to do. Do you think there's anything we can do on like a hardware level to help maybe improve that AI alignment? Or do you think it's all just a software thing?
1: Yeah. So the difficult thing is, right, like you train the model, right? And nowadays, you know, most of the models are trained on are, is just what's on the internet. But increasingly, it'll be enterprises, you know, specific data, TKKs, you know, order history <laughs> for all their users, right? And how they speak to the staff. Maybe that's how they train them. But for now, it's, you know, mostly stuff on the internet. Turns out on the internet, you can find any and every opinion from the most gross, horrible things to the most cute dogs and cats to, you know, like you can find anything. And so if you're training the model on that, right? Okay. It now knows all these things. But how do you, You know, it's kind of like alignment is basically giving a moral compass or trying to give a moral compass to an AI, because if you train it on the internet, you know, a significant portion of the data will be pro X or Y or Z, which we as society find reprehensible. But there are people on the internet who post about it. And that's the beauty of our societies. We allow that. You can go on the internet and post whatever you want. I'm happy we live in a society that allows us to do that. But at the same time, we need to have sort of a, you know, a ground truth, right? Our AIs can't just start spewing that because that was in their training data set. And so, you know, it needs to know all the arguments that they say, right? So you still have to train it on that. Still needs to know, you know, this is why they believe the earth is flat and so on and so forth. But it also has to know, you know, hey, that's that's incorrect. And this scientific paper proving the earth is round is correct. But the way you do that is very much involved on the software. But of course, it's computationally intensive. And I don't know if it's, uh, you know, because the space is moving so fast, maybe the algorithms for that end up being different than how you train the model itself. Who knows? But it is a complex topic. Got it. Yeah.
0: I want to ask you a little bit about some of the stuff that's going on in Taiwan on the semi stuff. I, I talked a little bit about the startups. You mentioned some interesting startups, that I haven't even heard of before, um, which is very cool. What do you think about that TSMC Germany fab? It hasn't been announced, but people largely seem it's like think it's a bit doesn't deal. Is there really so much of a future in automotive semiconductors going forward?
1: Yeah. So the world of automotive semiconductors is very different from, you know, maybe the world of AI and smartphones, right? You know, these are more so like, hey, give me three nanometer, right? TSMC started production of three nanometer. Let's utilize it. And that's in Tainan, I think.
0: Tainan, but the r and is done in Shinchu as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's a world that's important. But then the other world that's important is, what if I want to do specialized technologies? You know, not just 28 nanometer, hey, 45 nanometer, you know, old technology, but also like specialized. And so we can look at the fab in Japan as sort of an allegory of what the Germany one would look like which is hey it's actually a joint venture between you know some companies who bring their own unique technology you know Sony is one of the biggest contributors there and there's also some automotive companies but Sony's one of the biggest contributors there and Sony absolutely can make Semiconductors in some ways better than TSMC, right? That's around image sensors. Sony dominates that space, and they have some advanced packaging techniques, some advanced fabrication techniques. But at the same time, Sony isn't big enough to know how to run this massive fab, and you know want to do that. Maybe they just want to focus on what's important to them. But TSMC is the best operator of fabs in the world. So maybe there's a way that you know we can work together. You know, I contribute IP, you contribute IP, we build this facility together, and I have probably a cheaper source of wafers, cheaper source of semiconductors than uh, if I. Just just built it myself because TSMC just knows how to operate and build such a large, you know, fab that no one else maybe knows how to outside of, you know, just a handful of companies like Samsung and Intel and Micron and so SK Hynix, right? And, you know, arguably TSMC does it better than all of them too. So there's that avenue, right? And so Germany doesn't have any, you know, advanced processes in terms of like seven nanometer or below, right? They don't have any of that, but they have some very specialty technologies, right? Uh, so Bosch, for example, who's rumored to be part of this fab is very good at MEMS devices. And why don't you explain what MEMS is because you're better at that.
0: (laughs) Microelectromechanical systems. And these are like, the way I best imagine, it's like a, a tiny little fork. Like the tiny little fork that's inside your switch or your um, whatever the games play with the accelerometers, these little tiny discrete items are moving around. And it's almost literally a very large sensor shrunk down to a very small size. It's a very fascinating, but niche space.
1: Right, so these chips are mechanical. And obviously there is an electrical component too, but, you know, mechanical, electrical. Um, but Bosch is actually the world leader in MEMS. And they're the biggest MEMS foundry in the world. And so, you know, potentially, right? But like at the same time, Bosch is not, you know, again, not capable of running a $20 billion fab or building a $20 billion fab. That's just not their MO, right? And so, you know, they could partner with TSMC and, and MEMS, of course, you know, as you mentioned, accelerometers, there's a bunch of timing related chips, all sorts of sensors, you know, CO2 sensors. There's all sorts of stuff that MEMS devices could be useful for and not just automotive, but industrial, which is, you know, a space where Germany's really good at making machines and such for. So maybe that's what the fab specializes in. In other cases, there's ST Microelectronics does FDSOI. Fully depleted silicon on insulator. And Soytech is a French company, and they also do that technology. So, actually, you know, they're better at this kind of semiconductor than TSMC is. But again, maybe they know how to run a $20 billion fab, but that's the only fab they run. TSMC runs, you know, builds one of those every year. You know, maybe there's a way that we can work together to benefit. And there's many, you know, Infineon in Germany is much better than TSMC at power electronics, right? They're the largest power electronics company in the world. And same ST Micros as well is really good at that. So, maybe these companies can, you know, work with TSMC on doing power electronics. So, the world is wide open, right? right? Because TSMC is by far the leader in leading edge semiconductors, but there's a lot of specialty stuff, right? And it's not just like, hey, it's older technology. It's actually, hey, it's specialized technology, technology that doesn't need three nanometer, right? What it needs is the specialized material or the specialized capability. And so that's what I think the, you know, Germany joint venture fab would probably look like, but, you know, that's just speculation. It's what the Japan fab looks like, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It seems to be. Do you envision like TSMC turning to almost like a operator of fabs? It's almost like they're changing. It used to be that they built the fab, they own the fab, they run it, and then other people bring them their stuff. And now it kind of feels based on this story that you're telling me is that they're kind of being more like an operator of other fabs. Like their specialty isn't in creating the product, but running the machine that creates the products.
1: So TSMC will absolutely still continue to do what they've done at 3 nanometer and 2 nanometer and you know even 7 nanometer and so many other technologies. But I think this is like maybe a way they can continue to grow in spaces where they haven't been able to traditionally, right? Yes, there's applications that need these advanced leading edge, but there's companies around the world who have built a niche technology that TSMC has no capabilities in, but they can partner with them. And by partnering with them, they now can become a world leader in that technology.
0: Wouldn't that be worrisome for like an Infineon or... ST Micro, where, oh, we have this fab and we're making this product. Now we're going to partner with TSMC. We're giving them this IP. They're the best in the world at operating or running a fab. Isn't that a little worrisome for the, maybe not the company, maybe because I guess they have share, but then- the workers in that fab you're like oh all the products we used to make in this fab is now being made in this tsmc fab out there is there some concern there
1: i mean if we look at tsmc they're very famous about saying hey we've never shut down a process technology i don't think they've ever shut down a fab maybe they have but you know i think they're very famous in saying that so the world is one where they just make another fab right and the old one still continues to run on whatever you know developments maybe it becomes r&d or what have you right and the new one is just doing more product and besides right like you know the people who work in that fab are still needed right to either operate that fab or the new fab, right? Where are the people going to come from, right? Like, sure, TSMC is going to ship, you know, like at least in Arizona, they've shipped, I think, a thousand Taiwanese people to the Arizona fab, but that fab is going to employ thousands, right? So it's not like you know, there's no local people that aren't working there, right? It's just they're training the workforce there. And I'm sure long term, it's not going to be a thousand Taiwanese people, maybe it's a few hundred, and then a lot are flying back and forth and making sure it's running properly, right? Like, so it's, I'm not too concerned about that. I think it's mutually beneficial. Otherwise, why would they do it? Of course, there's going to be some companies that maybe don't partner with TSMC, and maybe that's negative for them, right? Let's say ST Micro and Infineon and Power Electronics, right? Let's say only one of them partners with TSMC. And that one maybe has higher yields and higher volumes and lower costs, and is able to beat out the other one long term. Maybe that's the pitch, right? And so it's negative for one firm, but the other firm is gaining massively because they are working with TSMC.
0: So I have a friend who lives out in Kaohsiung, and he's actually asking me, he wanted me to ask you, do you think TSMC will build that fab? I actually passed by it last week, the site. I used to think they were moving on it, but it's still, you can see the old shed there and all that. They haven't seemed to have started. And in the earnings call, they did seem to mention that they're not going to be doing 28 nanometer anymore, but they're going to move it to something else. What are your thoughts about that Kaohsiung fab?
1: Yeah. So TSMC's Kaohsiung fab is in a really interesting space, right? So Last year, we mentioned you know, in some of our reports, we talked about how uh, they were already canceling tool orders because they had put in tool orders, but then they canceled them. So we talked about that. That was largely driven by a decrease in demand for 7 nanometer. The smartphone market was weak. Some companies on 7 nanometer were moving to 5 nanometer, but then the companies moving on to 7 nanometer were not enough to make up for it. So utilization rates for 7 nanometer were falling. And so TSMC was delaying or canceling orders. But then as this sort of you know negative downturn in the semiconductor industry has continued, we've seen utilization rates continue to fall. And so the thing about TSMC 7 nanometer is that actually from basically like from 2006, 17, 18, when they introduced it to 2022, there was only like a couple quarters where they weren't 100% utilizing every 7 nanometer wafer they could make, making everything they could. And then in Q4 of 2022 they fell all the way down to 83% utilization rates, which is like slightly below industry average. And of course, TSMC is usually above the industry average. And the entire industry dipped from, you know, being at 100% to, you know, 80% or so. And so that was bad enough that they started delaying. But now if you look at, uh, you know, the data that we've been able to gather up and put out in some of our reports is, hey, actually in Q2 and Q1, they're going to hit maybe 70%. In Q2, they might hit 60%, right? Right now they might be at 60% utilization, right? The fab is running at 60% of the total output it could be.
0: Just the 7 nanometer, right? Yeah,
1: just 7 nanometer, of course. Some other nodes are, you know, fully utilized. So 7 nanometer was very, very, you know, worrisome on that front, right? And so it's like, do we want to continue to build a new fab? Maybe the demand isn't there, right? Maybe customers move to 5 faster or 3 faster than we expected. Um, And so I think they're delaying the 7 nanometer component, you know, for that reason. And then the 28 nanometer component's like, well, you know, we have the Japan fab and uh, we have the Nanjing fab. And, you know, now we might have this Germany fab all capable of, you know, around that 28 nanometer mark. Do we need the Kaushan 28 nanometer fab? That's the question, right? So maybe we don't need that right again with the downturn, but I do think they'll eventually build it, right? They've got the land, they've prepped the site. There will be eventually a fab there, but you know, what technology is probably not 28 nanometers, probably not seven nanometer. Could be, hey, you know, two nanometer where we've already selected the site, but, you know, one nanometer, 1.4 nanometer, whatever they call it. Maybe they do it there. Who knows? Or maybe they build a bunch of packaging facilities, right? So with this big AI boom, there's a lot of uh, investments in packaging and TSMC is building packaging facilities as we speak. Maybe they convert, you know, some of that we're going to do in Kaushan to advanced packaging.
0: I know a couple blocks away, the ASC fabs are there too. So that's a very interesting thought.
1: And when TSMC does advanced packaging, they still work with these uh, traditional packaging firms as well, right? Like ASC. So maybe the location's proximity is helpful. The other thing is, you know, TSMC is trying to get into other technologies like photonics, where they're far behind other foundries, right? Intel and Global Foundries are far ahead of them in photonics. Tower Semiconductor is ahead of them in photonics. So maybe they want to build something for specialty, you know, technology. Maybe they need to partner with someone to do that, but maybe they just want to build a specialty technology. So we'll see. What ends up happening, but you know, there's specialty technologies they could do there as well.
0: Has TSMC ever done display? Did they do display?
1: Um, I know they do do display driver ICs. I don't think they do displays. Maybe they didn't historically. I don't remember that. But I know they do display driver ICs, the chip that you put behind the display.
0: Maybe they can build that Apple micro LED display that supposedly might be happening.
1: Yeah, that's the other thing, right? There's Apple has a facility in Taiwan.
0: Taoyuan, Longtan. Very mysterious place.
1: Yeah, they're researching new display technologies. And, uh, you know, they don't want to, you know, they rely on Samsung so much for displays. And they haven't been able to break the shackles. You know, they, they they use some LG, they use some BOE, but they haven't been able to break the shackles. And they've been just researching these new displays for, you know, not just iPhones and some watches, but actually, you know, augmented reality and VR. Those have, you know, very different, you know, maybe needs. So eventually maybe they need this kind of display technology and they don't want to, you know, give it to Samsung, right? They want to build it, you know, maybe they don't build it themselves because Apple, you know, always uses third-party vendors, but they could, you know, hey TSMC, like, you know, maybe we do a joint venture fab, right? Um, or, you know, maybe some other company. So we could could see something like that happen.
0: It's kind of fascinating how over time Apple has done so much of the stuff in-house, right? The original iPhone had like a Samsung display, Samsung chip. Or like um, they they're buying all these parts or whatever. Yeah,
1: Synaptics so touch yeah. screen and all these sorts of things. Yeah. Like
0: why why do you think they've been so aggressive and kind of cutting other people out of that supply chain?
1: I think part of it is cost, right? If I can work directly with the manufacturer, I don't need to, or I can reduce the cost of manufacturing. That I can reduce cost. But I think more important to them is um, capabilities. You know, people don't talk about this much, right? You know, a lot of times the dis- debates about iPhone versus Android are very uh, focused on like the software, but you know, I use an Android, but I can recognize my phone has a battery that's like 40% larger than the iPhone that my brother has and his battery life is longer, right? (laughs) So it's like, you know, these optimizations are clearly helpful, right? I think the image sensors on my phone are actually uh, higher quality, right? They're both Sony image sensors, but the uh, the image sensors on my phone are actually a generation newer than the one on the iPhone that my brother has. And my camera pics are better, but his video pics are better. And how is his video is better? It's because they've designed their own image signal processing pipeline, right? And so, you know, there's these things that Apple does, battery life, security is another angle that they uh, are very strong on, you know, cameras, you know, these sorts of things that to the end user, it's like, yeah, I like this more, right? Like when I post my photo on Instagram, maybe or video on Instagram, it's better, right? But the reason why behind it is very, Technical and complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It is kind of fascinating how, like, the same components or even better components in another company's kind of grass or system doesn't have the same results. What are your thoughts on Rapidus, that Japanese two nanometer fab? I, Bloomberg did a report about them recently. Was it Bloomberg? I think it was Bloomberg or Nikkei Asia or something.
1: Yeah. So before I was in Taiwan, I was actually in Japan for a month and I uh, went up to the site. I met one of the people that are working on it, you know, that very ambitious, you know, in terms of, hey, we want to do two nanometer. But the timelines are, you know, kind of not so crazy. Right. Like, you know, I think they want to have the pilot line up by a certain date. And then their target for production is like 2029 of two nanometer. Right. By then, you know, TSMC is doing two nanometer in 2025. Right. Um, Intel and Samsung claim they're going to do it in 2024. We'll see. But TSMC, you know, I really trust that they'll do it in 2025. So that's four-year-old technology by the time they say volume production, right? So it's like, It's like someone saying, you know, hey, I've got seven nanometer today, right? Which is, you know, impressive, but it's quite a bit behind. And then, you know, are you going to have the same yields as TSMC and volumes and cost structure and all this? But, you know, if there's any country that could start a foundry from nowhere, I would say Japan is the one because they have so much capabilities in the tool space. And there's some parts of the semiconductor supply chain that it's only Japanese companies, right? Right, right. Like you can't make a mask which is what goes in the photolithography tool without Japanese companies. And so, you know, these sorts of things, and they have a huge talent pool, so maybe they can do it and they have to invest a ton of money. So the government's you know going to have to put in over $20 billion and we'll see if it works out. But I think it's interesting, you know, I get why they want to do it from a national security perspective, but two nanometer in 2029, is that really going to be competitive or useful? Or, you know, are people going to want to redesign their chips for it? We'll see. But, you know, more fabs everywhere is always good for me. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is. What are some other like Taiwanese semiconductor companies you think we should be knowing about, like be on our radar. Like we haven't mentioned UMC at all this whole meeting.
1: Yeah. UMC is, you know, they swap places here and there, but third or fourth biggest foundry in the world. They're incredibly important. They have some specialty technologies. People just say, oh no, they're trailing edge. No, they have some specialty technologies. There's PSMC, their power chip semiconductor manufacturing company, I think. Uh, What they make, PMIX a lot, uh, and they're a foundry for that. So power management ICs. Um, and then and among other things, and that's on the, you know, sort of fabrication side, but there's, you know, there's all the ODMs, you know, people don't tend to talk about, um, but there's, you know, so quantum Computer and Wishtron and, you know, Hanhai and so on and so forth. There's the big ones, but then there's small ones like Acton for networking. And then there's, you know, the, there's some of the startups we talked about earlier, but then there's also, you know, there's some companies in the Taiwanese space trying to get into equipment, right? Taiwan has all the fabs, but they import almost all the equipment, right? So... There's some initiatives to make equipment in Taiwan. There's a lot of stuff on the design side, right? Did you know whose CPU cores are the most common in the world after ARM? It's Andy's. Andy's uh, licenses CPU cores. They used to do their own architecture. Now they do a RISC-V CPU cores. Uh, but last year alone... There were 2 billion CPU cores that were Andes designed in the world that were shipped out, right? And, and of Where course- Where's this coming from? Andes? Andes, they're Taiwanese. What? Yeah. So Andes is in Taiwan. I mean, I just met them last week. I knew they were like investing in a risk five and things like that. And I didn't realize, one, like, I'm, you know, of course, they're licensing the cores and the cost that they're licensing them out is so low. And they do such a good job with support because every chip, you know, needs- Various CPU cores for control and security and management, and it's like, yeah, this chip might just have like eight Andes cores, and you would never know it because they're not exposed to you; they're just running firmware. So you know, that's the sort of thing that Andes does, and they're trying to you know help people with designing their own AI chips that use Risk Five, you know, things like that. So that's a company that is. Really interesting and cool, right? And then you know, GUC and Alchip help people design chips as well. There's a lot of companies in the Taiwan ecosystem that people uh, don't really know about.
0: So, Risk Five, like everyone asks me to do stuff about Risk Five. Like, what is your thoughts on what the future of Risk Five looks like? And can it challenge Arm? Can it challenge X eighty six? Like, what is Risk Five?
1: I mean, first and foremost, it's completely dominating ARM in these sort of security processors, management processors, so on and so forth, right? With ARM's business practices and lack of flexibility, there's room for companies like Andes and and many other sci-fi, you know, many U.S. companies, right, and Chinese companies to take over, right, and microcontrollers and so on and so forth, right? Like all these places. But then there's also sections for accelerators, right? Like, hey, if I want to make a machine learning accelerator, would I design my own, you know, whatever it is, it's core, something like that, right? Would I make my own custom instruction set? Would I then have to make my own compiler stack and everything? Well, it's like, what if I use a base RISC-V and then I just add extensions, right? I can modify it. I can add, you know, base RISC-V and then, hey, you know, my chip is going to do this special thing. And so I'll just add instructions for this and this and this. And then, oh, I can actually use the generalized ecosystem for RISC-V for compilers and software. I just need to add this, this and this instead mm-hmm. of having to reinvent the whole, you know, the stack. Right. I don't know, know what's called here. The phrase we often use is, you know, making the whole sausage, right? You know, and there's initiatives by companies to make Risk Five, you know, smartphones even, right? MediaTek and Qualcomm. Qualcomm already puts Risk Five course, in their smartphone chips. The main processor that people interact with is the CPU, of course, that's ARM based. But they're trying to move towards uh, Risk Five everywhere. And, and MediaTek's the same, and so many other companies. So we'll see it. It'll take time. You know, it's not going to happen all at once. What's
0: ARM doing here? Like, why are they doing this? Like, don't they realize that this is a competitor for them?
1: Yeah. So with Arm, right, they were a public company and they were profitable. And then SoftBank bought them and said, hey, you know, why don't we invest a ton into making it a data center? Why don't we invest a ton into IoT and a few other spaces? Some of these bets didn't work out like the IoT software one. The bet they made completely didn't work out at all. But then the data center one, it worked out really well. I mean, it looks like it's working out really well, right? Like you have Amazon making ARM-based chips. You have Ampere Computing, uh, which is a startup, but they're selling hundreds of millions of dollars worth of chips. There's Google and Microsoft are trying to make ARM-based chips. Alibaba's making an ARM-based chip, you know, for data center, right? So like tremendously successful, but for years and years and years, they've had to invest, and I bet it's still not profitable these data center chips today, because it's only just getting started, right? Um, And so they've been investing like crazy in that, and many other failed bets like the IoT software, and so on and so forth. And so they've been investing all their energy into that. They haven't been receptive and adaptive to what the embedded and microcontroller markets need. They've been, you know, very aggressive in terms of raising prices so they can fund these things because they're losing money already, you know, because they started investing in these things. So they need to increase prices. You know, they're suing one of their biggest customers, Qualcomm. There's all these things that are happening that is like, You know, they had to make these strategic bets. Maybe they didn't need to, right? Maybe there was a better way to, to go about this. And maybe they wouldn't be as far along in data center. Maybe they would have never done the IoT software play and many other things. But now that they've been losing money, you know, SoftBank kind of at some point, maybe two years ago, had to turn the screws and they were already not receptive to the microcontroller market and the you know, embedded market. And so that's where RISC-V was starting. But then, and they weren't letting people customize the cores. So that was also part of it. But then SoftBake started turning the screws maybe two years ago after the NVIDIA acquisition failed, right? Which is, hey, we have to make you profitable now, right? NVIDIA was like, okay, that's fine. We'll fund all this and not make it profitable because strategically we'll own this. Uh, Where SoftBank is, you know, needs to turn a profit now, right? They bought it for so much. You know, Nvidia acquisition was blocked by governments around the world, and so they turned the screws. They started increasing pricing and started suing their customers and being aggressive with them. And so now it's like made a whole flood of risk five investment come even stronger, right? Like Qualcomm investing in risk five in a way that maybe they were only going to keep it in the embedded space, you know, these the little security processors and firmware processors across the chip, but never, you know, the application processor. But I mean, when Arm started turning the screws, Qualcomm, which is like a hundred billion dollar plus, you know, company. It's like, oh, God, we need to make sure we can do risk five because that's the only alternative, right? Because if we lose this lawsuit, we're done, right? Right? Like, we're <laughs> in a very bad position. And that's happening across the ecosystem, right? And so not just Qualcomm, MediaTek. And, you know, for example, one of the rumors out there is, you know, MediaTek uses multiple companies' graphics. They use ARM's graphics for all the high-end stuff, mid-range stuff. But on the low end, they were actually using imagination technologies graphics. One of the rumors is that ARM basically told them you can't use that anymore if you partner it with our CPUs. You have uh-huh. to use our graphics. And so MediaTek's like, okay, we'll do that. But in the back of their mind, like, oh God, we need to invest in risk five because you know like so these sorts of things you know these aggressive business moves because arm needs to be profitable and softbank needs to ipo the company and make their money back on the investment especially because they're doing so bad in the rest of the market
0: it is does feel like a bit of a case of short-termism over long-termism i want to ask one bit quantum computing what is your take is it going to change everything
1: you know, theoretically, maybe it's possible and there's tons of money being invested, but I think we're like past the peak of the hype cycle, kind of died when everyone started talking about AI. (laughs) Um, You know, there's companies are working on it, investing in it. There's a lot of manufacturing challenges, software challenges and physics challenges and all these sorts of things. Cooling challenges, right? Like these quantum computers need to be at like negative 200 degrees or something, negative 272 degrees, I think, right? (laughs) Yeah. Because Kelvin is 273, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, So negative 272 degrees, you know, you need to cool it too. And it's like all these things, but no bit of useful work is ever come out of quantum computer. People will claim all these theoretical advances. But when you dig into it, it's like actually no bit of useful work ever came out of this. So we could be decades away. It could be theoretically impossible. We don't know the physics, right? Could be theoretically possible. Or, you know, we could be, you know, a breakthrough away from it being in, you know, five years. If it works, it would change everything, right? But who knows if it works?
0: Any last thoughts you want to think? Anything you want to plug?
1: Thank you for having me. You can go to www.semianalysis.com and check out some of our stuff. We also do consulting. Lastly, you know, Twitter. I'm big on Twitter. Dylan 522P. And then if anyone is in the industry and I'm actually trying to hire in Taiwan. So, you know, that's the other thing. I've got people in California and Singapore, but I want people in Taiwan, obviously the center of it all. And I travel a lot. So yeah, all of those things.
0: Dylan, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much.